Amen. Well, God bless you. Um, we are blessed with more children this morning than we normally have. We, we always have a lot, but I want to welcome all of the kids who are here. Anyone who's under the age of 18, uh, or if you just feel like a kid, you're welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, and so God bless you, ladies, as you love on these kids and uh, teach them scripture and memory verses. Amen. Bye. There goes AJ. Bye, AJ. Bye. <laughs> Amen. As one of the things I love about our church, and this is another compliment that someone gave me who uh, is actually part of our church, and it's the first time they visited here, they told me that this was the Sunday that uh, the kids did a catechism up here on the stage. We've done that from time to time, and they said that's why we stuck around, because that was so impressive that we actually want our children here in this congregation to hear God's Word, learn God's Word, let it soak into their being. Amen? So you kids enjoy learning God's Word? Keep, keep learning it. Amen? You are the next generation of the church, and we take that responsibility seriously. Amen? Please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 26, this final week of what we call Holy Week this time of God, of Jesus' final hours and days on this earth. This is the week that we celebrate actually His passion, and that means His suffering. It's interesting that we have, uh, in our church tradition, we celebrate His suffering. Now, not many of us would, in the secular world, celebrate suffering. But in the Christian faith, it was Christ's suffering that, that gives us liberty and freedom from sin. He took it upon himself willingly. He did not deserve the suffering. He did nothing to earn it at all, but he willingly endured suffering for us. And I would even argue that Jesus suffered more than just during the final hours of his life. As painful and as torturous as his final hours were, Jesus suffered his entire life in some form or fashion. He lived a life that was perfect, yet he took on all the sin and the sufferings that we endure. He suffered even though he was perfect, but he did so willingly, and even he did so joyfully. I want us to remember that. Jesus suffered joyfully. How many of us are guilty of whining in our suffering? There is... It is good for us to cry out for God's mercy in our suffering. Please continue to turn to the Lord any time that we suffer. But we do not complain to the level of, oh, woe is me. We do not murmur and complain as the children of Israel did in the Old Testament. This morning, we remember this special day because it's on, especially on the church calendar where we reflect upon the triumphal arrival of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, as Bill shared with us in Matthew chapter 21. And this event ushered in this final week of life for our Lord. So the events of this Passion Week or this Holy Week, they culminate in the betrayal and the judgment and the crucifixion of our Lord. And this is what I want us to focus on today. I wish for us to think to, to focus our thoughts upon all that too tragic necessity that caused Christ's crucifixion. It was necessary for the tragedy to happen. It was necessary for the betrayal to occur. One of the chosen 12, Judas Iscariot, is the one who betrays our Lord. He's one who walked with Jesus throughout all of his ministry. 
Yet in the end, he turns on him. So if you will stand with me, let's read Matthew chapter 26 together. Verses 14 through 16. As we prepare our hearts and our minds to hear from our Father in heaven. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Precious God, we praise you and we thank you for your word. Even these short verses that remind us of the betrayal of our Savior. There was one in the twelve, one amongst the inner core, the group that surrounded Jesus, who betrayed him. And this was necessary for all of these events to occur. Your prophets of old looked to this event, and it was necessary for Jesus to be betrayed. So God, this morning I pray that you would cause us to understand the weight of this final act of Judas Iscariot but also to see how Jesus, even in the midst of this betrayal, had compassion. But Judas rejected it. Lord, it's important for us to see the truth of our sin and how subtle it can be for us to be following the the temptations that Satan and his cohorts bring. God, I pray that you would cause us to turn our hearts and our faces to your Son, Jesus Christ, every day in all times, Lord. Cause us to remember that it is your Son, Jesus Christ, we look to no matter what. Let this day be for your glory, Father. Speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. What do we know about Judas Iscariot? Whoever's heard the Easter story, who's ever heard the crucifixion narrative, understands that Judas is the name that is most associated with the act of betrayal. Matter of fact, whenever we accuse someone of being betraying, anyone who betrays someone else, we call them a Judas. That's a common phrase in our language. We know the name Judas implies distrust and betrayal. Anybody here ever been betrayed? before, by a friend, by a family member, by a co-worker. It comes from nowhere oftentimes. It it comes from someone that you have built trust with, and then suddenly something turns and you are stabbed in the back. Your name is maligned. Your your relationship that you thought was, was secure is broken, and you realize the truth of the relationship was not what you thought it was. That's betrayal. And our Savior Jesus Christ endures this, not that Jesus is caught off guard at all. That's what we're going to see in today's text. Yet he still endured betrayal from someone who was close. Judas's place in the Twelve is often debated. Scholars throughout the church history have had different opinions on where Judas fell within the twelve. What was his place? What was his importance? But the one thing we do know is that he he kept the money bag. He was the treasurer of the group. He had an important job. But Judas's name implies that he may have come from a region known to be the region of Moab of the Old Testament. He, he uh, his name implies 
that he probably grew up in a region about 11 miles east of the Dead Sea, and he was, he was a Moabite of descent. So it appears that Judas is the exception among the 12 of Jesus as the only non-Galilean. Okay? And so his name is always, whenever we see the list of the 12 apostles in the Gospels, his name is always at the end of the list. And if you're taking notes, you could find lists like this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 4, Mark chapter 3, and then Luke chapter 6. You can find the different gospel treatments of the list of the 12. And every single time, Judas is listed at the end of the list. And, and sometimes it, there's, a, there's a qualifier, Judas the betrayer, or Judas the one who betrayed him. That is his name. That is his reputation. That's how we understand Judas. Now, all of the Gospels malign Judas as the betrayer. It's a, it's a unique and equal treatment of who Jesus was. He was the betrayer. And he's never given favorable mention in the Gospels, never. Even in, even Paul treats him this way. Even throughout church history, Judas carries this reputation of unfavor. Now, while John's Gospel points to Judas and, and the evil actions that he did. Um, John mentions Judas early in the Gospels and actually clarifies pretty clearly up front that Judas was the betrayer. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, wait until around the Passion Week narrative to mention Judas as the betrayer. Judas enters into history as the answer to the problem that the chief priests had. Do you remember last week when we were looking at how the chief priests and the elders were seeking and plotting to arrest and kill Jesus? They had a problem. We have to be careful and we don't know how to proceed because if we go too, too forcefully, we're going to cause a riot. Remember, that was the problem. That was the dilemma. Judas is the answer to the problem. He, I mean, can you imagine being the enemy of Jesus? and plotting to arrest and kill him, hoping for an answer to how to do this. And what a gift one of Jesus' own shows up and offers to take you to him. Can you see that? But think about this. You are plotting and planning evil against Jesus, and you don't know how to proceed. And you have a gift. Here Judas shows up. They didn't go after him. They didn't seek him out. They didn't recruit him. They didn't put out an advertisement. He shows up while they're meeting. That's the implication. While the chief priests and the elders were meeting um, in Caiaphas' house, Jesus, Judas shows up. Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. Now, this follows um, what happened at Bethany. Now, we wonder why in Matthew 26, Matthew kind of does a flashback in verses 26 through 13. We mentioned that last week as we were comparing how the high priest Caiaphas and the elders were thinking about Jesus, and then we had Mary who anointed him. There's a reason that Matthew in chapter 26 does the flashback. Because now when we come to verse 14, we see Judas Iscariot. And it is possible that Judas is now acting in this manner because he is still burning with contempt over what happened a week prior. Remember when Mary wastes, quote-unquote, all of the ointments and worshiping Jesus. The response of Judas and the twelve, were, they were indignant toward her. Now we see in verse 14, Judas is now acting on that indignation. 
We wasted all this money out of the treasury. I'm going to get part of it back. <laughs> and we're going to see what's happening here. Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. Now this verse implies that clearly we see that Judas initiates the partnership here. That's what we have to make sure we understand. Judas initiates the sin. Judas acts on his own initiative here. Now, Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Now, Luke's account tells us that Satan entered Judas at the Last Supper, and then he departs. Now, but while that's the case, and as he goes to the chief priests, I want to emphasize here, even though Satan does enter Judas, he's still culpable for his actions. You know what that word is? Culpable means that he is responsible for the sin. He's not an innocent pawn here in some cosmic chess game. As some people will try to argue that as God is in control of all things, and he is providential, meaning that God is in control of all choices, all actions, all decisions, all movement, there is still the responsibility of the sinner in, in doing what they do. Judas is culpable here for all that he is doing, even though it has been prophesied of old that there would be a betrayer. I want to bring that point here. Because when we see here in verse 14 through 16, everything Judas does, he does so on his own accord, despite the fact that he is clearly possessed by Satan and moving on. He's not a pawn in a cosmic chess game. If Satan enters Judas, he only does so at the willingness of Judas. This is important to understand about whenever we talk about demon possession or Satan directing us in sin. Satan has no power to direct us to do anything. The demons of Satan's horde have no power to make us do anything. Anyone who is possessed by Satan, like Judas is, invites Satan in. I want you to understand this very important doctrine of the church and a very important doctrine of the scriptures. Anyone who is demon-possessed, anyone who is directed by Satan to do evil, Satan can only do so by the permission of the person acting. How do we see this? Judas willingly initiates evil against the Son of God. And C.S. Lewis, anybody like C.S. Lewis? Y'all read the Narnia books? C.S. Lewis also has another series of books that he wrote before the Narnia books called the Space Trilogy, if you've ever read them. Amazing work, okay? I would not recommend them for children. I would recommend them for probably late teens, or late middle school, early teenage up. But he, has, he, he portrays this idea of satanic possession in his work it's the second book of the, of the trilogy called the Paralandra. There is an evil protagonist by the name of Dr. Weston, an evil scientist. And in this narrative, C.S. Lewis really portrays a wonderful account of how he becomes possessed. Weston, this evil scientist, he's pursuing this, quote, life force of the universe. And this is a humanistic distortion of the spiritual that controls all things in the universe. All of the cosmos is tied together with this life force. And there's a, there, here's the line that uh, C.S. Lewis uh, brings here about Dr. Weston. 
Here's the words of this character. He says, I am the universe. These are his words. I am the universe. I, Weston, am your God and your devil. I call that force into me completely. And following that line in the story, he goes into a contortion. And it's, this is the point that Satan enters into his physical being. Now, that's a narrative from C.S. Lewis. It's not necessarily scriptural, but it is true. Judas here, as he interacts with the chief priests, and as Luke's gospel reminds us that Satan entered Judas, Judas welcomed the possession. He is, whether consciously or unconsciously, he allows it to occur in his soul. Satan does not use Judas as a puppet. He cannot. He does not have the power to do so. Let's remember that we see this. Judas, whether he consciously welcomed the devil or not, he was deceived through trickery, and he allowed himself to be deceived. Willingly, Satan comes into his being, and Judas allowed his own greed, and I would say perhaps his own envy, to become a willing vessel for the devil. And the betrayal was pure evil. Have any of us been guilty of succumbing to envy, greed, jealousy? Let me caution you here from the words of our Savior and the words of the gospel that we have an account of Judas here for a reason. Judas allows this to occur. Now let's take a look at verse 15. And this is talking about Judas when he comes to the chief priest, verse 15, and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him how much? 30 pieces of silver. Common imagery in our literature and in our tradition of the church. We know what 30 pieces of silver does. This verse tells us that the act of betrayal was valued. Valued at 30 pieces of silver. Now this, now Matthew's account here is the only gospel to specify the 30 pieces of silver. The other gospels do not. 30 pieces of silver was the value of a slave. We find this in Exodus chapter 21. If you purchase a slave, the cost is 30 pieces of silver, but it's more important. It's not just any slave. It's a slave that is damaged a slave that is impure. You would pay, in other words, a slave that was not worth much was at least worth 30 pieces of silver. That's the point. And as a matter of fact, Exodus chapter 21, verse 32 makes it more specific. If you have a slave who is damaged by being gored by an ox, can you imagine being physically gored by an ox? I mean, what is your value as a slave physically at that point? You're only worth 30 pieces of silver. That's what Exodus tells us. You see the deeper insult here? Our Savior was no more valuable to these evildoers than a damaged slave. Zechariah's I mean, Zechariah's prophecy also points this out. When you look at Zechariah chapter 11, as you're taking notes, I hope you do, verses 7 through 14, Zechariah is told by God to act out the scene of a shepherd to teach, it's a life lesson, right? You ever come to churches and they have dramas? Okay, the Old Testament prophets did that all the time. God said, do this as an act to teach the people something. And Zechariah is doing the same thing. He's acting out this scene of insult. By God's directive, Zechariah the prophet, he dramatizes the relationship of a shepherd who is the shepherd of a flock that was doomed for slaughter. Can you imagine being in possession of, of a flock of sheep that is 
They're ready to be go kill, right? In other words, they're not very valuable. They're ready to be slaughtered. And the shepherd is insulted by the other shepherds who are actually worthless, and they disregard this particular shepherd's patience and wisdom. They disregard Zechariah, and they actually ignore him and mock him. How does Zechariah respond? He breaks the covenant with them, and he tells them, just pay me my wages. And so they insult him, Zechariah, the prophet of God, with 30 pieces of silver. It's a foreshadowing of Christ. I would encourage you, Zechariah chapter 11 is a great Old Testament prophecy that foreshadows the coming of our Savior. But it, it, it lays the groundwork here for us to understand what is happening in the betrayal. Jesus was not considered important enough by his betrayers to be worthy of, of life. They thought of him as no greater than a damaged sheep a damaged slave, a worthless human being, a worthless person to be tossed away. That is what the 30 pieces of silver tells us. It's an insult to him. But now notice here in Matthew 26, verse 15, that it is Judas who asks for the money. Notice that. Now, perhaps Judas needed the money. Perhaps he merely felt the services to the chief priest deserved payment. And perhaps he was using this as a test to the chief priest to see how much they valued his services. Even there, if, if the payment was literally intended to value Judas, you see how they, how the chief priest even valued Judas the betrayer? <laughs> You're no more valuable than a damaged slave. You see the insult here in the stories. Clearly Judas intended to be paid though. After all, he was a treasurer. Amen. A good accountant, a good treasurer is going to demand money. Y'all ever tried to uh, get away with not turning in your receipts at work to the accountants? Amen. They're going to get paid one way or the other. Now, how do we understand Judas? In other words, why is Judas doing this? We don't really have a clear understanding in the gospel narratives as to why what Judas's motives were. The gospels don't really particularly say, here's why he was doing it. Very clearly, it's an evil act. Very clearly, Satan is in charge here. Judas is culpable. And he is clearly torn here as to what he's doing. But we can look to medieval church tradition to kind of get a glimpse and maybe some insight as to what maybe maybe what he's doing. Medieval church tradition says that Judas was in financial debt, perhaps from a demanding uh, family. Um, One church tradition that I read said that Judas, before coming to be an apostle of Jesus, he was married, but he was married to his mother and didn't know it because he killed his father. Sounds like a Greek uh, tragedy, doesn't it? And I think that's probably part of the story. It was weird. But I think the, the illustration there was this is a tragedy, tying it to the most, uh, most well-known tragedy of all literature, the Oedipus. Judas was tragic. But we clearly see that in in the medieval church tradition, they say that Judas uh, confesses that before he came to serve Christ, he was a thief. And and Jesus welcomes a thief, knowing he was a thief, into the twelve. You see the love of Christ and the power of forgiveness there? The, The opportunity for a thief to be so close to Jesus. But we see here also that if Judas was a desperate sinner, 
Judas is the victim of tragedy. And Jesus pours out compassion upon Jesus, upon Judas and makes him an apostle. Now we can see here that the other thing here in the stories of the medieval church is that Judas shares that he was indignant against Mary for wasting the money on the ointment. And the ointment traditionally says that it was cost 300 silver coins. And so if Mary is wasting 300 silver coins, Judas wants to get his 10% back for the poor. What's 10% of 300? 30. Judas thought that he could do this action as a restitution for what he viewed as wasteful. That's one of the traditions. Now, I don't know if this is true. It's just a tradition. But it's a tradition in the church history that teaches us something. That's why these traditions are there. It's not to be historical, historical and factual. It's to teach us a lesson. If Judas did do this for what he thought was right, what was the outcome? How many of us are guilty of the same thing that we decide for Jesus what to do? Anybody guilty of this? We're all guilty of this. I mean, we see this, we see this problem in this sin throughout all of the biblical narrative, even going back to Abraham and Sarah, right? What did Sarah do? She decided, God said we're going to have a baby, but I'm too old to have a baby. I'm tired of waiting for a baby, so I'm going to fix it. And we know the problems that resulted from that. David, as well, as he is sinning and lusting after Bathsheba, he wants to consume this woman and possess her for his own. And he doesn't want to wait for God. Not that God was going to give her to him anyway. And he decides he's going to fix the situation for his own benefit. What was the result? We can go from there. This is not a common, I mean, this is not an uncommon problem. So what Judas is doing here is nothing new. Yet what he's doing is tragic. Whatever the motive for Judas's betrayal, what we see here is that the Last Supper marks the point really of no return for him. Let's turn to verses 20 through 25 of Matthew 26. Matthew's gospel tells us, beginning in verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Verse 23, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. This clearly shows that the turning point for Judas was right here. Jesus declares that one of the twelve would betray him. Yet the sign of the guilty would be the one who dipped his hand in the dish with Jesus. Verse 23. That at this type of a dinner, this type of activity, that perhaps every one of the men in the room would have done the same thing at some point during the meal because you would have been sharing bread and bowls. Does this mean that each of the followers of Christ would eventually betray our Lord? I think maybe to some degree all would fail in their loyalty to the gospel. We have evidence of that, especially Peter, who falls from grace, but then is restored. All of the other disciples through, I mean, we, we know that they all kind of, well, they all disappeared after his crucifixion and hid as if they were no longer associated. 
At some point, every one of these 12 apostles would deny the Lord and let him down at some point. Just like every one of us who have been bought by the blood of Christ, let us be honest with ourselves that in our walk with our Lord, we do let him down often. So what does Jesus mean here that the one who dips his hand in the bowl with me is the one who will betray me? The thing is, though, here with this point that Jesus is making, even though all of them in the room at some point would fail in their loyalty, none would sink to the level of unforgivable betrayal. Judas is the only one who sinks to this level. We see the confusion and the worry among the 12 in the room here in verse 22, where they say, uh, where, where Matthew says, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? So even there, that, that is, they're, they're, they're perplexed and they're questioning Jesus. And this question of, is it I, Lord, is another sign of doubt. Am I letting you down? Is it possible that I can be the guilty one here? They were perplexed. Nearly, clearly no one other than Jesus suspected Judas at this point. Yet John's account of the Last Supper and Judas's betrayal in John chapter 13, if you want to flip over there, this gives us the detail that Peter prodded John, the beloved disciple. Look, flip over to John chapter 13. This kind of helps us understand the layout of the room. John chapter 13, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. Verse 24, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So there we have a little bit more detail of exactly the interactions. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. You see the interaction there in Luke's and John's gospel. We have a few more details here. John's account reveals that Jesus is in control of the whole thing. I want us to see that. When we look at John's detail here, it's not that Jesus is oblivious to what's going on. The only people in the room who are oblivious are the other disciples. Because John's account tells us later that they thought that Judas was leaving to perhaps go and give money to the poor, which was a custom of the Passover. Or perhaps he was going to buy more food for the celebration that was going to last for another week. But you see here that Jesus in this whole narrative is in control of the whole thing. As Judas willingly shares the bread with Jesus, Jesus gives him direction to do what he knows will be done. You see that? But but lest we interpret this encounter of sharing the bread at the table as Jesus breaking his relationship with Judas, notice that if Judas was close enough to Jesus at the table to dip his hand into the bowl, that means that Judas was placed at the table with the purpose of being in a position of favor. Because when you were in the in, when you were sitting around the table, Jesus would have been in the middle, and whoever was closest to him were the most favored. We know that John the Beloved was right there next to Jesus because he could lay his hand his head on his shoulder and show affection. Yet Judas was nearby as well to dip his hand into the bowl. That's interesting. 
Why would Jesus allow His betrayer to be that close? That could have been a practical thing, right? What's the phrase? Keep your enemies close. Why? You can keep an eye on them. You don't want your enemies distant from you where you don't see what they're doing. You want your enemies close. And Jesus, I think this shows that Jesus is even more so in control of the situation. Now, Peter here, we see, was seated far enough away from Jesus that he had to poke John on the shoulder because he couldn't get to Jesus and whisper, Hey, John, ask Jesus who it is. So you see where Peter was in the pecking order? (laughs) Peter was a little bit further away. Jesus sharing bread with Judas is clearly a sign of friendship, though. I want you to ponder this. Jesus sharing bread with Judas is often seen as a sign of friendship. It's a sign of peace between enemies. The Lord and Creator, Jesus Christ, He breaks bread with all fallen man. We are all enemies of God, yet He breaks bread with us. And we're going to be doing this next week at at, uh, Resurrection Sunday. We will be having communion as we are commanded to do by our Lord. And Jesus here is breaking bread with all of His disciples But more specifically, he's purposefully sharing bread with Judas. This act, I think, is perhaps one last appeal to Judas, a last point of connection with the vile evil that is coming to show that the Son of God actually cares, even for the most vile tempter, the most vile betrayer. Jesus is showing Judas, I know what you're about to do. Let's share bread together. Is that how we treat our enemies? Jesus is. Because when he says here in verse 27 of John 13, what you're going to do, do quickly. This verse seems to be less a command of of condemnation and more of an insistence for Judas to make up his mind. What are you going to do, Judas? Does Jesus do this for each and every one of us? When he grabs our hearts, when he grabs our attention... Jesus will grab us by the face lovingly and look us in the eye. What are you going to do? Jesus, I think, even although he understands and knows that Judas is full of evil and possessed by the devil and is doing what he's doing, he's showing his power and his, and his compassion here. It's a sign of friendship. We even see this in, in Matthew 26 When Judas comes to the Garden of Gethsemane with all of the soldiers, Jesus looks at Judas and calls him friend. We can't miss that point. Yet Judas is still condemned. And Judas is still guilty. And Judas is still, he's culpable. There comes a point for all of us to make up our mind about Jesus. Now, this is not that we choose Jesus or that we choose salvation. Because Jesus clearly initiates salvation. Jesus clearly comes after us as a shepherd comes after his sheep. Yet there comes a point with our interactions with Jesus Christ that that he grabs us by the face gently and he looks us eye to eye and he says, what do you think? Make up your mind. That's what he's doing here. Jesus chooses us. He comes to us and he demands one direction from us. It's either him or it's not him, period. There is no gray area. There is no middle ground. And this is what Jesus is demanding, even of Judas here. Which, which choice is it, Judas? What are you going to do? We also see more detail here that, G, that Judas, when, when, when he's in charge of the finances, 
And as he goes and he, they think he's leaving to buy more bread, he's going to gather his cohort of betrayers to Jesus. And that shows us what his decision is. He leaves and he goes to get the others. Now let's go back to Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 24. Going back to the scene here of the Passover meal, the final supper. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. These are the words of Jesus concerning Judas. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, and it would have been better if he had never been born. These are words of condemnation, and they're chilling. Does that just stir your soul here? It would have been better for him not to have been born. Now, Jesus' death is inevitable, but the betrayer is guilty. Even though Jesus had to die, even though he was, it was destined for Jesus to go to the cross, Judas played a part in that, yet he's still culpable. Now, this is a mystery, but it's a common theme in Scripture, and God's judgment holds accountable the free choices of all sinners. And let me, pon- let me emphasize here from Scripture, the only time that we see any kind of actions of free will are the choices of sin. That's the only choice that we freely make is sin. When we come to salvation... It is Jesus who comes after us. God pursues us out of love and compassion. And he changes our will to want him as well. We're not puppets, but when you say that we have free will, the only free will that we truly have is to choose sin. We cannot deny our Savior. (laughs) We are, but again, we're not puppets, but we cannot deny our Savior if we are honest. Yet we choose sin. So this passage here, Matthew 27, let's flip over to Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10. We'll close out with this. This is the passage of Judas's final hours. After Judas betrays Jesus, and they meet in the Garden of Gethsemane, and even as Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 50 says, friend, do what you came to do. After all of the trial... Even after Peter denies Jesus and Jesus is delivered to Pilate, Judas realizes at this point all of his actions cannot be undone. Look here at Matthew 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Judas realizes after what he does that it cannot be undone. 
Now, this is speculation. Perhaps Judas felt that even though he gives Jesus up to the high priests, that Jesus was so powerful that it wouldn't matter and he would escape and it would even bring Jesus more glory. Perhaps that's one thing. And when he sees here that that didn't work, he changes his mind and is full of guilt. We don't know exactly what was in his heart. We don't know exactly what was in his mind. Perhaps this was the point that Satan departs and he wakes up to his sin. But rather than go to Jesus and beg for mercy, what does Judas do? He is so overwhelmed, he takes his life. Scripture does not contradict itself because we see two different statements here. Uh, Here in this passage, Matthew 27, and actually in Acts chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, these are the only two passages that tell us about Judas and what he does. And in Acts' account, Acts chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, as Judas leaves and and he's ridden with guilt, he buys the field and falls into the field headlong. Whereas this account in Matthew's gospel says that he hanged himself. Now, some would say that Scripture contradicts itself. But let me point this out. Perhaps both are true. Perhaps Judas does go and hangs himself, and either the rope breaks or he hangs there long enough for the rope to decay and his body to decay, and he falls into the field down the cliff. Both can be true. Either way, it is a horrific end. An apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the twelve, becomes apostate. He denies the faith. He denies his Savior. One who walked with Jesus, who was welcomed in by Jesus, called by Jesus, turns and is apostate. Now, Judas was prophesied to betray Christ, yet he's still held accountable. Theologian Donald Hagner says this, We can pity Judas, but we cannot make a hero out of him, nor, alas, even a believer. Because the perseverance of the saints is one of the clear signs that someone is a true believer. How does your life end? How does this walk with Christ end? If you persevere in the faith, that's a pretty good sign that you are genuine and the Lord has genuinely changed you and you are persevering. Yet, if in the end you turn from Christ, that's a pretty good sign you did not persevere. And we cannot give you the label of believer there. By his own will, Judas became the friend of Satan, and he abandoned all of his hope and friendship with Jesus. He suffers an eternal torment today. Judas is not in heaven with his Lord. He's suffering eternal torment along with Caiaphas, the high priest, and Pilate, and Herod. They're all in eternal torment at this moment because of how they treated Jesus, how they thought about Jesus. Ponder this for this week. I want you to think about this. Judas clearly falls into the unforgivable, the unforgivable sin. Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 through 32 reminds us, these are the words of our Savior. As he is being challenged and charged with being a uh, possessed by the devil, Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. But but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder the house. Verse 30. 
Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. That's the unforgivable sin. Verse 32, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. What does this mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? It's really clear. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of your sin, if the Holy Spirit is drawing you to salvation in Jesus Christ, and you reject that calling, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit in that moment of of awareness of your sin, that can never be forgiven because your sin has not been forgiven. If you reject the salvation possible through Jesus Christ by ignoring and turning away from the prodding of the Holy Spirit, then you have turned your back on the Savior and there is no forgiveness. Is this what Judas has done? Absolutely. How many of us in this room are guilty of this at this point? How many do you know who professed Christ or just even flat out rejected Christ? They have rejected all hopes of salvation that was freely offered to them and they have no hope of forgiveness evermore if they turn from Christ. Judas befriends evil. He embraced Satan and rejected his Savior. That was his sin. And he does betray Jesus. And how many of us are guilty of the same? As we betray our Lord in the same manner. I want us to ponder this week. I don't, again, I'm sorry that sometimes these sermons get heavy. But I want us to really ponder this week our standing before the Lord as we come and celebrate next week the most pivotal point of the church that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Without that, we have no salvation. Without that, we have no hope. Are we turning to Christ? Are we turning to ourselves? What are we doing? But let's also remember here that Judas, who was possessed by the devil here, according to the Scriptures, it began with a thought. Jealousy. Envy. I can do this on my own. I can fix this problem. It doesn't take much for Satan to creep in and take advantage of seemingly innocent ideas. He's subtle. But if we're not careful, those subtle ideas can fester and grow to where we willingly allow Satan to use us for evil purposes. My challenge to us all is to please turn to Christ. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your own selfish solutions. I can fix this. No, we can't. We can't fix it. Only Christ can. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to be with you in your word. Lord, the history of Judas is overwhelming. We, we know the end. It's a tragedy. Yet at the same time, Father, you have given us this tragedy as a lesson to remind us that we could do the same. And so, God, I pray at this moment that you would pour out your love in this room to us and remind us of the, the grace that is freely given through your Son, Jesus Christ, 
and how more attractive and more true and more real that grace is than any sinful thoughts that we are pondering at the moment. Dear God, I pray for the protection of this congregation and all who call upon the name of Christ, that if there are evil thoughts creeping in, Lord, that you would protect us by sending your Spirit in us to remind us and strengthen us to turn away from the temptation of evil. It's subtle. May we worship you, Father, with genuine hearts. May we embrace your Son, Jesus Christ, truthfully and gratefully. Lord, let this final moments of this worship be for you. Be here in this room with us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.